the question of why did we treat this as a droplet initially, I think there's a lot of things that played into that and they're not necessarily as science driven as we would hope. I think the initial fear was that if, if we called it an airborne disease, um, we wouldn't have the resources we needed to, to actually um, deal with it properly in hospitals. Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash forgottencornerpod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. We acknowledge that the Forgotten Corner occupies unceded Indigenous land. We acknowledge that the Blackfoot Confederacy never surrendered its land in the signing of Treaty 7, but agreed to share it. The Forgotten Corner sits on Treaty 7 and Treaty 4 territory, traditional lands of the Siksika, Kainai, Pekani, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina, as well as the Cree, Sioux, and the Soto bands of the Ojibwa peoples. We also honour and acknowledge that we are on the Métis Nation within Region 3, the Forgotten Corner is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and if you'd like to check out other progressive podcasts from around the country, do click the link that we will provide in our show notes. My name is Scott Schmidt. I am the co-host here alongside good friend and co-host, and uh, always happy to see Mr. Jeremy Appel. Mr. Appel, how are you, buddy? Hello. I'm uh, I'm doing all right. I had a very busy week uh, this week, journalisming. And, journalisming? Uh, and and yeah. didn't even have to do a strike. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, they they uh they got a pretty good deal at uh, at Cargill. Um, yes, so did. um, that's good. I'm happy for uh the workforce at Cargill. I I still managed to get uh you know uh, a handful of stories out of that. So that was good. Um. Uh, I, I wrote a piece for the Canadian Jewish News that I'm uh, quite surprised they uh, had me write. Um, we'll see how heavily it gets edited. Uh, that'll be out tomorrow why, or Why is Monday. it weird that a Jewish journalist would be writing a certain piece for the Jewish News? Oh, well, it's about the, the uh, a, a coalition of uh, Jewish university instructors who came out against this... Uh, Ira definition of anti-Semitism. I think I've spoken about in the podcast that conflates anti-Semitism with uh, certain, uh, you know, criticisms of Israel. And, um, um, you know, the, 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 their, uh, the CJN um, is reporting on uh, the push to get that definition adopted by governments and universities and whatnot has been pretty uncritical. So um, I'm, I was pleasantly surprised that they assigned it to me. Um, so, yeah, and, and uh, you know, some other, I, I had a piece at the Maple about oil barons. I don't know if you saw that one. Nope. But I, I sort of did a deep dive into uh, um, the sort of uh, oil and gas elites and pipeline elites in Canada. Never heard of and, them. Yeah, like Murray Edwards. Uh, you know that guy? Yeah. 
Yeah, he's got a lot of money and like, uh, uh, you know, Al Monaco, at, I believe, Synovus and, you know, anyways, right. I won't bore you with details of every story I wrote, but uh, it was a productive week. Um, I've also been, uh, and why I was really busy this week is I've been uh, door dashing uh, to make some extra money. Um and slave uh, to capitalism holy shit yeah it um i mean the idea I, I like the idea of just driving around calgary and picking up food for people and delivering it to them and finding like cool new like restaurants and stuff to check out uh but it's it's minimum wage work right i mean what it ultimately amounts to um at least in my experience right. uh, so far in the past week and a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it adds up and, you know, it's holiday season. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, uh, you know, use the cash. So it's, yeah. it's a nice well, bridge you. till I find something, um, find more permanent work. Anyways, yeah. enough about me. Yeah, enough about you. Um, how are you, me, Scott? Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, just kidding. Um, well, I'm fine. Uh, we had a, interesting week at the in well let's just say i was ashamed at, at journalists this week that's my big story of the week is that in medicine hat uh one in medicine hat and one in edmonton so anyways there's a million things going on in the, in the province right now and this week was no different right uh adriana lagrange's uh attack on teachers um oh that's right because they're enabling in a way where basically she can call any of us that push back like uh pedophile apologists you know yeah, yeah it's like it reminds me of uh remember when the conservatives were passing their like bullshit like online like um laws um in vic taves who was the public safety minister at the time said you're either with us or the child pornographers which is very rich from a party that had hired tom flanagan uh before right um who of course famously said i i don't know why we're uh arresting people for their taste in photography um, right but... so anyway point point being is that there was a plenty to plenty going on and we could have picked any one of those subjects to talk about uh bill 81 nuts i'm sure everybody knows about the that um we actually agree with drew barnes for once so that's how fucked up that is but when he's right he's right yeah that's right but while this is going on nonetheless in the background lurking as it always has for the last almost two years is covid19 and the omicron variant coming along now i guess it hasn't been around for two years but you get my drift we uh i we like to we like to keep on this subject because i i think it's important that people don't uh let it out of their minds no matter what fight they're fighting this is one that we have to keep paying attention to and even jason kenny's now saying like the there there will be a fifth wave i don't know if you saw the ctv uh article just now uh recently no, he, he said he's going to relax uh restrictions for christmas because current restrictions <laughs> i don't know if they said it this way but it was certainly written to imply this but he said my own plans for christmas would violate the rules right now so i'm going to change them so cool 
No, but his own plans for Christmas are bullshit. He said he's having th- three, three family households. Members three yeah, households. like there's no way he he has that many people who can stand being possible. I mean, he like, didn't say like friends. I mean, okay, so is his mo- his mom's still alive, right? So okay, fine, fair enough. She, he's her son. Um, his brother, who's an even big, bigger freak than he is. We're getting stuck on the wrong details here. <laughs> um. And yeah, I, there's no one else. It, it's his mom and brother. Right. They're, that's right. two households. Okay. Nice so, try. Anyway, so shifting focus. So one of the things that we haven't talked much about on this show is the aspect of how COVID is transmitted and the uh, what used to be a debate for whatever reason about whether this was an airborne transmission. And when we had Dr. Kasparovitz on the show a few weeks ago, we got into the subject a little bit. And she said, if you really want to get into that subject and hear more about it, you need to talk to Connor Rizicki. And we thought, well, that's actually perfect because not only is Connor Rizicki a former member of the Forgotten Corner, but he has been one of the sort of leading voices uh, in Alberta when it comes to the uh, aerosol transmission. And of course, this is what his PhD is about. So I think after all this yapping, we should get to the show. What do you think, Jeremy? No, I, I just think we should yap for We'll just the, yap the some more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Connor really can good. wait. No, <laughs> right. I'm just kidding, Connor. All right, we're getting, we're getting You have the it. patience of a saint. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry for uh, being especially rambly today. All right. Connor Ruzicki is a 31-year-old PhD candidate at the University of Alberta, who is quite conveniently focused on aerosol science and technology. He is currently finishing his dissertation, so he'll be Dr. Ruzicki soon enough. But if you heard our show last week, you know I definitely won't be asking him how long he has left. Sorry, Bridget. Connor is also a born and raised member of the Forgotten Corner, having grown up in Medicine Hat. And for those of our listeners in the area, he is also the son of Dr. Bill Ruzicki, a friend of the show and a local doc that we have a ton of respect for. Connor has been making a public name for himself during the pandemic, using his social media to share his knowledge of aerosol transmission and why it's something Albertans need to focus on. If you're a regular listener, you did hear uh, Dr. Gasparovitz recommend him a few weeks ago, which felt kind of in line with exactly what we were hoping to do at some point here anyway. So without further introduction and rambling by Jeremy, Connor, welcome to the Forgotten Corner. Thanks thanks for having me. Uh, Jeremy, you sure you're done rambling or do you want to, <laughs> anything else you'd like to get off your chest? Or... <laughs> if you ask Jeremy to get something off his chest, that's the whole podcast. <laughs> okay, maybe we'll keep that for later. <laughs> yeah, you know what I can't stand? <laughs> you know what grinds my gears? Yeah, no, I, I'm just kidding. Um, well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing it. Yeah, no, very, very, um, uh, very glad to have the opportunity. Not something I would have seen myself doing two years ago, that's for sure. Well, I, this is one of the things I want to talk about is how, uh, how uh, sort of crazy, your, perfect your field of studies ended up being so soon. But uh, before we get to, to that, as we always do in the Forgotten Corner, you can't come on the show without talking a little bit about who you are, where you're from, why you do what you do. And so we know you were you were born in Medicine Hat, yeah, and raised in Medicine Hat. So um, tell us just a little bit about sort of uh, growing up in the Forgotten Corner, son of a doctor, uh, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a bit of an open-ended question, yeah. But no, it's, uh, <laughs> I got, got like, here. yeah, of course. 
No, I, I, I uh, remember growing up in Medicine Hat. It was, uh, you know, I went to like Ross Glen Elementary School, um, Alexander Junior High School and Medicine Hat High. So I had the whole pretty typical, um, um, the hat experience. Uh, I don't know, Medicine Hat was a pretty sweet place to grow up. Um, you're, you're pretty much in the corner of a province. And, you know, back in those days, things seemed a little bit more peachy, but maybe I was just young and I was a little bit more innocent. So I, I don't know, I had a good time growing up. You know, it was always interesting. Um, my dad's got a bit of a, he's more of a well-known figure than most, I think, in Medicine Hat. Um, so it was, uh, you know, I grew up a lot going to Tigers games and, you know, um, sort of hanging around with my dad as he sort of helped out with their team and sort of seeing how, you know, medicine, you know, worked its way into the everyday lives of people. So I think that really um, kind of motivated a lot of how I grew up was just sort of seeing the importance of science and medicine and sort of everyday experience you know my mom's also a microbiologist she used to work at the college so so really um from the get-go sort of doomed for i think a bit of a life in science if you if you will uh putting the medicine in medicine hat yeah well hey there you go that's actually not a bad way of putting it um yeah no i i mean um yeah medicine now is a great place to to grow up as a kid um you know it's um i left for for university and yeah yeah so your dad was uh Reft a lot of rugby from my recollection as well. Did he not? Did you, oh, yeah. uh, you, you played rugby as well in high school? Yeah, I played a lot. Um, played a lot of rugby in high school and I played a bit in university too, actually, um, until my knees exploded, but you know, that's, that's how it goes with the sport of <laughs> rugby. So yeah, no, no, it's, um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Bill, my dad was always doing the coaching of, of a billion different sports that my sister and I were in. Right. So yeah, it's uh, yeah, quite used to that. I hate to, like, I hate to say that I judged a book by its cover, but I was talking to a colleague, Colin Gallant yesterday, letting him know that you were coming on the show. And uh, um, he asked about rugby, he said, uh, he played a lot of rugby. And I said, what was he, the ball? <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's uh, i don't really have the right body type for rugby i think these, well you don't necessarily massive, look so. like the, you, you don't look like the sort of uh, quintessential rugby player but uh, i mean there's a lot of different body types <laughs> yeah there's a there's a position for everybody in rugby that's the lovely part about that sport so you know you can all, all sizes and shapes for that sport that's for yeah, sure i say this as a guy that would have never even dared try to get on the court or on the pitch so believe me uh, there's no uh <laughs> no derogatory meant there um but uh do you do you still like you obviously probably don't play anymore you're pretty busy with your your phd and whatnot do you um is your dad still involved with rugby at all oh he's uh he's he <laughs> he, he was i think he he's sort of reached the uh, retirement age so he's sort of enjoying his uh his more um benign pastimes i think right, so right. <laughs> sudoku yeah. puzzles and shit that's exactly right yeah that's how did you awesome. know <laughs> that's awesome yeah. and uh, i I'm, i would be remiss if i didn't do to call in the favor of asking what is your sister doing because he said that he thought she was going to go off and be a paramedic when he was covering her playing rugby uh, what did she end up going to do? Yeah, that's exactly it. So she's up in Edmonton, actually. Um, her and her husband are up here. Her husband's a firefighter with uh, with Edmonton, and she's she's with AHS and that sort of paramedic type thing. And they just had a couple of kids, so it's kind of cool to have nieces and nephews and that sort of thing. Yeah. How, uh, not to get too far off topic, but uh, have you had much of a conversations with your sister about what, what this being a frontline EMS worker at, it, during this time has kind of been like? Uh, well, she just kind of um, has applied for the role as as uh, as this pandemic's been going on. So, I, you know, it's um, she was doing her sort of um, the the training ride alongs during the pandemic, and it's some interesting experiences there. But 
Um, but yeah, I haven't talked, you know, I don't think she's had the full on experience that a lot of the paramedics we have in the province have, have had to deal with for the last like two years, but, right. um, you know, there, there's hints of it there. Right. So, yeah. Sure. So for yourself, then you, when you went off to after high school, when you went off to university, did you like, what was your mindset when you started? Cause like, was it, I'm going to be a PhD candidate studying aerosol science and technology? Like what's the evolution of what you, what you were planning to do and sort of where you are now? Oh yeah. <laughs> no, that was not the case at all. Uh, I mean, I, I went to university um, actually having no idea what I wanted to do. Um, you know, even five years after starting um, university. So like I, I, uh, when I was graduating high school, I knew that I liked math. I knew that I liked science. And, and, uh, I thought one day maybe I'd try to uh, become a physician. Um, but I ended up going into engineering, um, because I, again, cause I really like math <laughs> and, uh, you know, I went through my undergrad and, uh, did quite well in the engineering thing. And, and, you know, even after I graduated my undergrad, I still had no idea what I wanted to do. Uh, figured that, you know, maybe doing a master's would be, would be a good idea. And I did that. And I still had no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, I ended up getting in touch with a really great, um, supervisor who's really, um, renowned in this field of aerosol science, um, at the U of A. It was very, um, by happenstance, just happened to, to be lucky enough to get in contact with this guy. And he was, I have a position open in my lab. Um, like if you were thinking of doing graduate studies, like, you know, come check it out. Um, and, and, you know, it was, I think probably one of the best decisions I made was not stressing too much about what my plans were at the time and just saying, you know what, this guy has got a good reputation. I like him. Like, let's just see what happens. Um, and I've, and he was the, the supervisor I did my, my master's with, and I've sort of kept on, um, turned it into a PhD. Like I, I did finish my master's and took some time off in between and stuff, but, um, yeah, no, it just kind of kept the ball rolling, realized that, um, you know, I thought a PhD would be a good idea at the time. Um, and I still think that so, which is good, <laughs> never a bad sign when you're not regretting it at the end. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's been very much, um, this is, didn't really have a, a like an overarching 10, 20 year plan. And, and even now I, I kind of <clears throat> like to think about things in three to five year chunks. I think anything sure. more than that is kind of hard to, to plan for these days. Well, I, I think now we're in down to three to five week stints is about all you can plan for right like yeah. you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself in any way yeah. um before covid i mean i guess even still like what what what, what were your plans or do you, do you have a plan for sort of what the what profession like what job you were hoping to get into out are you just gonna like be a teacher like a professor or what's like oh man what, people what? are people are gonna hate hate the way that i've done things because because i very much like <laughs> i said i didn't really have a, a like a great idea i mean I, there was some stuff that i liked and you know in the back of my mind until only a few years ago i, I kept kind of thinking like ah maybe i should go to med school type thing um but you know as uh, i i knew that i i kind of enjoyed teaching um you know i i I've TA'd a bunch of courses i've given lectures to undergrads and stuff and i, I actually really do like that um, the sort of dissemination of knowledge thing. So, so teaching people about a subject is something that's pretty rewarding. Um, and just this, you know, this pandemic has been many things for many people, but for me, it's really helped me focus in on, I think, a couple of things. And one of them is, is really the value of teaching uh, and the importance of being able to get, you know, high level information, you know, out, out there into the public in a way that people can understand it. Um, but it's also, I think for me, uh, reinforce the importance of research in general of, of high level research on stuff that, you know, nobody's looked at before. Um, you know, without that sort of high level research, without people who are willing to, you know, do that kind of work, 
um, it's hard to make progress on, on the problems that we see nowadays. And, you know, we know that a lot of problems are getting worse. I, I think it's just kind of, it's so important to have that, um, that, you know, the willingness for people to, to look into these problems that research is and, and just kind of focus on that. So I think that's kind of where my head's at these days is wanting to make a career out of, you know, looking at these sort of complex problems from a research perspective and see what I can do to try to help get that knowledge out there. Well, you, and you say that people will hate how you ended up doing it all, but I mean, I think it probably evolved like it does for most people. I mean, none of us have a clue what we're going to do as we're getting out there. Uh, but what was the trans, when you first realized as this pandemic hit that, oh my God, this thing that I kind of accidentally fell into without any real like, uh, uh, you know, future plan of what I was going to do all of a sudden, this thing is maybe one of the most important subjects on the planet, if not the most important subject on the planet to have knowledge about and to study. What was that sort of uh, like transition? What, what was your mindset like as that sort of came into, uh, evolved into like, uh-oh, like, <laughs> this is a very relevant thing I'm doing now. Yeah, it was a really, really good question. Um, I think we found ourselves, like not just me, but other people in my lab, you know, we found ourselves in a unique position where when, you know, what is March 2020, I think when, when everything sort of uh, became, you know, it became obvious that we were dealing with a problem here in Canada. Um, I think that's when we started, you know, my supervisor started getting a lot of, of emails and stuff about, well, hey, like, what do we do? Like, should we be using homemade masks and stuff like that? And and we sort of started to transition into um, a little bit of these sort of side projects where we were actually looking at, okay, you know, do homemade mass materials, do they work for aerosols and, and these sorts of questions. Um, and as I got into that work and was reading the literature on, you know, what was out there and, and I saw how COVID was being described in terms of transmission, it didn't line up with my knowledge in my field. Uh, and I was like, well, what's going on here? Like, is my field wrong? Like, is, is there some, like, where's the disconnect? Um, and I think at that point, I sort of realized that, you know, there were, there were problems that, that my field could help address. Um, and, and I wanted to, to, I think, contribute to, to the fight against COVID-19, like most, like many of us did. Um, and I, I felt like in, like I was uniquely, not, not myself personally, but our field was uniquely poised to, to sort of help out there. Um, but, but, you know, the thing was to, to, to do that, we had to be willing to actually engage with the public because the message wasn't getting out otherwise. So it was not an instantaneous thing. It was like over the first few months of the pandemic, I was, uh, we were all figuring this out and, and I sort of saw that, you know, our messaging wasn't talking about these aerosols. Um, and, and that's when I started to get frustrated, I think with the messaging that was coming out from official sources. Um, and, and I, I kind of got involved with other people who were similarly frustrated and, you know, since then it's turned into like a year and a half of, of advocacy really. So yeah, bit of a long winded answer, but <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's what it, we do takes, it, it takes me back to the early days of COVID when uh, people were like uh, wiping down their groceries mm -hmm. with, uh, yeah, yeah, for yeah. Sure. But um, actually that, that reminds me because uh, you know, COVID is airborne and I'm sure we're going to talk about that in more detail shortly, but um, I wanted to ask, because, um, you know, a lot of people are still using sanitizer a lot, and obviously that's not a bad thing to keep your hands clean, but is that, like, is is that, like, I kind of make fun of my girlfriend because she's always sanitizing her hands. I'm like, COVID's airborne. Um, am I being a dick? <laughs> am I the asshole? 
Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, like one of the things with, with COVID, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, is that, that, that there are potentially different ways that this can be transmitted from person to person. So we were very, very focused on those surfaces. So, so contaminated objects initially. Um, and, and it's kind of what we learned is that those aren't really that important for COVID. Like it can happen, um, but it's not, but it's very rare. Um, as, as compared to airborne transmission. Um, but, you know, there, there are other diseases out there floating about. And, you know, some people have really terrible hand hygiene. Like there are people that don't wash their hands after they use the bathroom, like, which is pretty gross. So I, I don't think it's a bad idea for people to keep up the hand hygiene. Well, <laughs> well, well, hold on. Are we talking not washing their hands after a number one or a number two? I, I don't know. Either way, I'm hard hit journalism on the forgotten. Because I, yeah. I think those are categorically distinct but (laughs) that's just my opinion before we go on about this i want to like i said to you i wanted to get a real layman sort of definition of some of this stuff and i did a little bit of reading of this myself but you're you're the the expert in this field and i want you to first just start by originally when this came out was a lot of talk about how this was going to be transmitted through droplets and then and it's so can you just before we go any further just tell us the difference between aerosol and a droplet okay um yeah can do very glad to have this question so okay so droplets are the way that that they're described as behaving is they're these big globs of of basically spit or respiratory fluid um so they're quite big basically visible to the naked eye um these things are so big that gravity like basically pulls them out of the air um pretty quickly so they actually don't tend to float around in a space like you know if you're uh, I'm sure we've all had the experience of you're eating with somebody and you see a bit of spit like fly off their mouth and land somewhere. Like that's what those drops are. Um, and the idea of drop, like droplet transmission was that it was these, these globs that were sort of landing on your face or in your eyes or your mouth or nose or something like that. And then that, you know, because those tissues do have, um, vulnerability to SARS-CoV-2. So, so the idea was that those drops landing there would, would cause you to get infected. Um, but so, so those are drops. Um, aerosols are, are smaller. They're smaller than, than these big drops. Um, they come in a huge range of sizes. Um, and generally speaking, um, they, they tend to float around for, for a little while. You know, depending on their size, they can, they can float around for hours in a space. Um, and, and because they're small and they float around, you can actually inhale them. So every time you take a breath, you're inhaling some of these aerosols. Um, and they'll land in different parts of your lungs. Um, and, and that's basically what this aerosol transmission is, is that, you know, if you're, if you're infected with SARS-CoV-2, um, some of the aerosol that you produce naturally when you're, when you're doing anything like talking, speaking, um, shouting, uh, coughing and sneezing, for example, all of those things actually produce aerosol. Um, and some of that aerosol, if you're infected with SARS-CoV-2 um, and you're shedding virus, some of that aerosol will contain virus. Um, and if somebody else who's sharing a space with you inhales that virus, they can become infected. So that's, that's really all it is. It's, it's just, it's, it's thinking about um, drops are this idea of something impacting directly on your face. Aerosols are the idea of you're actually inhaling it into your lungs. Now, what in my reading, so I'm going to sound all smart here, but unless I'm wrong and you can correct me, but uh, what I read was that uh, certain viruses like uh, measles and chicken pox are aerosol. Uh, but influenza was a droplet virus. And I'm wondering if that 
is that the reason why they started with the mindset that this was a droplet transmission because they were so eager to equate this to the fluke? Oh, I love these questions. These are great. Um, so, okay. So you're, you're really opening up so many topics that we can we can just rip right into here. So, okay. So um, what I will say is that um, droplets and, and aerosols, you know, the way that we used to think about respiratory viruses is that there was a difference between those two things, between droplets and between aerosols. But what the last two years of research and, and not just on SARS-CoV-2, but you know, this, the, the thinking of how the physics of these things work is telling us is that probably every respiratory virus um, has some aspect of this aerosol transmission going on. And we don't know exactly how much, but, but you know, we think it happens with, with everything. So, so you know, a lot of the literature from a few years ago doesn't really reflect this new understanding. Um, and I think that's one thing that we can take from this pandemic moving forward, not just for SARS-CoV-2, but for other things like the flu, um, you know, like common cold, stuff like that. All of these probably have some aspect of transmission that is because you're inhaling, uh, like something that contains virus or bacteria. Um, so, you know, if, we, if we're smart and we apply the lessons we've learned, you know, maybe we can help reduce transmission of all of these sorts of different diseases moving forward. But so that, that's, uh, that's, that's part of it. So, the question of why did we treat this as a droplet initially, I think there's a lot of things that played into that. Um, and they're not necessarily um, as science driven as we would hope. Um, I think the initial fear was that if, if we called it an airborne disease, um, we wouldn't have the resources we needed to, to actually um, deal with it properly in hospitals. So, so the way that you know, infection prevention and control in, in hospitals works is you have different categories of, of PPE, personal protective equipment. You have contacts, you have droplet, and then you have um, airborne. Um, so the airborne is where we're talking about using respirators all the time, like using these patient isolation rooms and stuff like that. Um, and, and, you know, I think rightfully at the, at the start of the pandemic, I think we feared that with the number of people we were expecting to end up in hospital, we wouldn't be able to, to take care of them all properly because we we're not set up for thousands of people with, with an airborne disease, uh, unfortunately. But what we didn't do as we got past that first wave and as we started to you know, improve our PPEs, we, we didn't reevaluate that initial decision. Um, we didn't apply what we were learning from other countries. We didn't apply you know, what the aerosol scientists were telling us. So there's some low hanging fruit that you can take uh, you know, even if you can't get an, an airborne isolation room for every single patient, there's still things you can do um, that are better than, than just these, you know, loose fitting surgical masks. So, so that's kind of, I think that initial decision was not as much driven by, there's this notion of the precautionary principle. I think we kind of dropped the ball on that one. And then we didn't really go back and reevaluate it. So yeah. <laughs> Which and, and why, why do you think that was that we weren't looking at like comparative uh, data and drop the ball on it? Yeah, well, uh, it's a really, really good question. You know, I think, I think there's going to be some, we had a commission for SARS um, after the first SARS outbreak that looked at, you know, what could we improve with our response moving forward? And we did not implement the conclusions of that report. So are we going to have another commission that comes up with the same conclusion? Probably. 
are we going to change something and, and change the culture that we have in Canada so that, you know, we're not so flippant about this? Um, I hope, I, I think there's, you know, there, there are different forces that played into this. I think we also have a question of, in, in some, sometimes it's ego of people who have made a decision initially and don't want to go back and admit that there were mistakes made. Um, I think there's some questions about liability. Like if we admit that this is airborne, like, are we going to get sued out of existence? I, I think there's a lot of stuff that plays into it. But, you know, from my perspective as an aerosol scientist, I, I hate that we're not using the word airborne. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, and like, I, like on July 6th of 2020, I jotted that date down because it's my birthday, but um, 239 scientists. Why, why do you and, need and, to jot it down if it was your birthday? <laughs> fair, fair comment. Fair point. <laughs> 231 scientists, clinicians, and, and engineers co-signed a commentary published in the Clinical Infectious Diseases, urging the recognition of SARS-CoV-2 being spread through aerosols. Higher-ups with the WHO denied any affiliation with that commentary, and, and it sort of reportedly killed its credibility. Um, the WHO has sort of changed its stance, but even a year later in April, we're still writing that aerosol transmission was only likely during certain medical procedures such as intubation and focused still more on droplets like sneezing. How is something aerosol, uh, insert, how, how is that even possible? If it's, air, if, it's, if it's airborne or aerosol in certain procedures, why would they think that that's only in those scenarios? That's, that's the part that confused me. Yeah, so, so there's a lot that feeds into this and I think, and, and um, it really does trace back to kind of the previous framework we've used to think about respiratory disease transmission, which, which again is this contact uh, droplet airborne. Um, the way that that had been described is that droplet was something that's occurring in close proximity. Airborne is something that occurs only at long distances. But um, as I was mentioning, you know, this inhalation of aerosol is something that occurs in both close proximity and across longer distances. And there's a whole bunch of factors that play into, you know, how important is long distance versus close distance. But, but we have not been operating on this idea of inhalation at close range being important. So Jeremy, I saw you taking a couple rips from a, from a vape there. Um, you know, this is a perfect <laughs> mental model to think about how these aerosols behave. So when you're, if, if you and I were standing face to face and you're exhaling a puff of your vape, um, I'm exposed to a lot more of that vape. I'm going to breathe a lot more of that in when I'm right in front of you, as opposed to if I'm on the other side of a room. But if, if, if we are sharing a room with each other for hours and you're vaping the whole time, it's going to build up. The, the, the smoke, the, the vapor is going to build up over time. The same thing happens with bioaerosol. And, and this is why we have aerosol scientists and, and now lots of other people, thankfully, starting to talk about we need to do more to look at things like ventilation, um, you know, you know, technologies like HEPA purifiers, you know, uh, even just opening doors and windows so that you can try to get some fresh air into a space. Like all of that, all of that is predicated on trying to reduce the concentration of these aerosols. That, that's all it is. Um, so so there, there are so many disconnects in between like what the messaging is to the public and, and you know, and, and what the advice is because nobody's using the term airborne. But, but all of the measures that we're talking about now, so you know, doing stuff outdoors, opening windows, you know, using HEPA purifiers, all of this stuff addresses airborne transmission. 
So there's this disconnect and, and it's, to me, it's ridiculous that we're two years into this and we're still not using honest language. I, I don't know why we're not doing it. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's the, that's the thing. That yeah. Works. Is there like a, like, is there like a droplet lobby or something? So, yeah. <laughs> Some of us joke that there must be. <laughs> so I don't know. I think, you know, what happens if you admit airborne transmission is important is that um, this goes from being more of um, of everybody sort of has to be, you know, hyper vigilant about washing their hands all the time. And, you know, if you get sick, it's your own fault. It transitions more to like, we all have a responsibility, like when we're in shared places like classrooms, restaurants, you know, all these sorts of places, we got to make sure that those places have good ventilation. You know, if, if we're expecting people to go back um, to, to everyday life, like before COVID and, and share indoor air with each other, but, you know, if we haven't done things like look at ventilation, um, what hope do we have of trying to limit transmission? Like we don't. So, so admitting airborne, I think kind of, I think it puts pieces um, in motion that a lot of people don't really want to do because it costs money. It takes time. Um, and, and for some people, they have to admit that they were wrong and that's very tough for some people to do. So, so there's some things that are pushing back against this. I, I hate that that's, that's occurring. I don't think it should, but I think that's what's going on. Well, the, what I don't understand is like, we're, we're already, we're actually, we were talking about this at the beginning of the show. Even Jason Kenny's now admitting that a fifth wave is going to come. There's more that like, we're not, what I don't understand is why we're not doing two things frantically as a nation or as a province or whatever. One, why aren't we frantically trying to figure out how to produce our own vaccines and have that? And two, why are we not frantically working to uh, deal with ventilation issue, issues in schools and things like this? Because it sounds from everything I've been hearing, it sounds like we need not just to like we need like a, a minimum bar standard like regulations added in on on what is even allowed to be built yeah i i think that's um that that's kind of what a lot of 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 us are would suggest would be a good way to do it is is you want to make sure that all the places we're using meet some minimum standard and and in theory they should already um there are standards for ventilation rates in all these different places that we're doing but um but you know, just because there's a standard, it doesn't mean that what's there is meeting that standard. Right. Uh, so, so, so part of what, what I think is really important to do is to identify the worst places. We have a lot of spots that are probably pretty fine for ventilation. Like this is not something we need to worry about. Like every single building needs to be evaluated uh, or it needs to be upgraded. I, we need to find the places that are the worst spots, the places that don't have ventilation or that the ventilation systems aren't working and, and people haven't checked it or, or maintained it properly. And I don't think we've done that as much as we can have by this point, because we haven't been focused on this airborne transmission. We've always we have a lot of old, we've got a, a lot of old school buildings in this city that I can't imagine have the uh, most up-to-date HVAC systems. Oh yeah. That, that to me is likely why there's this reluctance to acknowledge that transmission is aerosol because then that means governments will have to spend money to uh, improve ventilation in, in, in buildings. Um, yeah, I, th I think there's some truth to that. You know, the, the, um, I, I had a really interesting question from a reporter a little while ago who was sort of asking, so why, why did the Public Health Agency of Canada start talking about aerosols now like if this is something that we've kind of known of for a while like why why bother talking about it now um 
And I thought it was a really good question. And I was trying to think of a good answer. And I think the answer to that question is that in looking about how SARS-CoV-2 has gotten better at transmitting from person to person, um, ignoring this problem is less and less possible the longer we go. So you, you talk about costs for, for improving ventilation in places and for checking it. What are the costs of an ongoing pandemic? I mean, look, we're two years <laughs> into this. Like we're not like, spending money yet. How many more years are we going to deal with, with waves in the hospitals? Like the, the hospital staff are already burned out, you know, like what are we, I, I, there's no cost benefit analysis to not implementing ventilation. It's, it's like, there are costs to doing nothing and we're going to be paying it as long as we don't do anything, you know? <laughs> when we started, like when, when I was reading about this earlier, I was confused as to why engineers were so uh, uh, passionate about the aerosol stuff, but I guess engineers would be who you want to ask when you're talking about how we're going to fix that side of the problem. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, there's lots of, of parties involved in this, right? Like this is a super complex problem. I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. Like it's, it's, if you're talking about trying to to do this on a wide scale across the province, like you need to get the relevant experts involved. And those relevant experts are, are the HVAC engineers. But like, luckily we have lots in the province. We've got tons. Um, and you know, the, the, all of the major engineering associations like APEGA, um, ASHRAE, which is like the sort of the, the king of the ventilation sort of regulation bodies. Um, like they've, they've been very forward about, you know, acknowledging airborne transmission and about implementing these sorts of things. But we've just had this disconnect where, you know, public health agencies haven't wanted to, to, I, I guess, either admit mistake or to, to, you know, uh, to, to even start to look at this more seriously than, than what we had before, which is zero. So, you know, it's, it's, we're in a very weird situation at the moment. Now, I want to talk about sort of what we've been doing uh, to mitigate and, and like, obviously, one of the things is is mask wearing and we should all be wearing masks and I've heard different varying uh, uh, commentary on on how masks work and whatnot. And so one of the layman things I was great explanation I thought was somebody just talking about the simple, it's just simple like a solid piece of something is going to stop more than nothing right it's like it's why when it's why we went into caves to to keep warm because the fucking weather over there sucked was the right and so but i think it's clear at this point that 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 the basic cloth masks aren't doing as much as they should do right and so are we is our are our mask mandates enough like are because Gosha didn't seem to think that K that N95s and KN95s were all that hard to come up with. Like I thought maybe it was just because we didn't have any of these things and we we're like, hey, put something over your face. But you see someone that just ties their bandana around their mouth and you're like, ah, or the face shields, which has like 14 inches between your mouth and the and the shield or whatever. Are we making it worse by not uh sort of making sure everyone has the N95s and the KN95s or are, the, are any mask doing something? Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, so I think this little bit off topic of this and I will get back to it, but no one problem, of the things no that's problem. so challenging with COVID-19 is the misinformation that's out there. Um, and, and you have groups that are, that are so like anti-mask, anti-vaccine, blah, 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 blah. Uh, there, trying to toe the line of what a smart message is versus something that's going to add fuel to that fire is so tough. 
Um, so, so I say that just to, just to sort of preface how I'm going to talk yeah. about cloth masks. Right. So, so um, cloth masks actually do, as you were saying, um, they do something. Um, but at this point in the pandemic, you know, given what we've learned, um, given that, you know, these new variants actually are better at um, transmitting through these aerosols, uh, all of the science is there to suggest that we should be moving towards something that gives you more protection. Um, and it's not only something that gives you more protection. If we're all wearing these better fitting, higher performing respirators, so like KN95s, N95s, those sorts of things, um, as opposed to if we're all wearing cloth masks. So uh, one, you know, if you're wearing it, you get more protection. Um, but if, if you're wearing it and you happen to be the sick person, um, the people around you are exposed to less as well. So, so these work in both directions, right? And that, that's one of the reasons why masks and respirators are such a beautiful thing is that, you know, on the one hand, if you're sick with COVID-19 and you're actually emitting these infectious particles into the air, uh, the masks remove some of that particle um, and they help reduce the amount of viruses in the air. Um, and, and that's something that I think that was originally why we use masks in the first place, right? Was to try to reduce the amount of virus that, you know, somebody who might be infected is actually going to spread around. Um, but now we have the beautiful option of using these respirators um, that, that there's not a limited supply anymore. We've got, we've got millions in, in the country. There, there's millions of them. Um, we should be using these as we face this new variant, this Omicron variant that by all indications is, is extremely transmissible. Um, you know, we got to be, I, 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 well, that is if we actually want to limit transmission. So this is another argument <laughs> that some people are going to make is that, well, we, we don't want to limit transmission. I don't think that's a smart choice at this point. You know, well, um, well, I think we, I think it, when every, two, every two months we have a new variant that's worse than the last, I think like the idea of letting this just sort of run its courses, that ship has sailed. <laughs> like, even I though think, it hasn't, if you're talking to the governments or anything like that who seem to think yeah well i mean look at look at the messaging that's coming out from public health agency of canada i mean i think it's pretty clear that they think there is a problem here um with omicron uh coming right before christmas holidays and and i think you know from that perspective we should be doing what we can to try to limit transmission as much as we can i i don't know why we keep playing russian roulette with this virus it's just a little a little um stupid <laughs> well it's it's like you know, this whole, like I, that CTV article I was talking about at the beginning of the show with Kenny this week saying like, you know, I don't want millions of people in Alberta to be breaking the rules at Christmas. So I'm going to lax the rules instead of saying, instead of the whole, listen, you guys, like how many fucking Christmases do we want to lose here? If we don't keep our foot on the gas, you know, if we if we let up at all no matter what holiday it is we've already learned our lessons like this is what i just that did like there is no way that laxing restrictions even for a few weeks is going to be a positive in yeah the i mean <laughs> so like it, it's it's uh we're in such a ridiculous situation aren't we um i mean look at the reality of what we're doing in this province is we have people going to restaurants all the time, um, you know, hockey games. Life is pretty normal, um, to be honest. I, I think um, by QR and large, code and have at it. Exactly. Um, and I think it's like, how can you not blame people for being frustrated with the Christmas gathering rules when we've put this focus on 
um, I guess things that make money more than more than your family, right? Um, so, you know, if, if, if people listening here will probably be getting together with their families, and and um, you know, I would from a harm reduction approach, I think there's things that we can tell these people to to try to make those gatherings safer. Um, you know, uh, things like the rapid test that the province is giving out. Um, those can be really good if you do that right before you hang out for Christmas. Like it'll tell you if you're probably infectious or not. Um, it won't rule out an infection, but it will tell you if you've got enough virus in your system to, to really be a concern for spreading it. Are those still yeah. 150 bucks though? Uh, I thought I saw something about them coming for free at a pharmacy next week or something, which would actually be a good policy. Okay. For so if so, they like, yeah. if they're going to lax restrictions, they better make them free. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, look, if they're going to lax restrictions, they need to give the tools there for people to be making smart decisions. Like it's, it's, I think that's, that's kind of my take on the pandemic is that we've, you know, last year, we focused so much on this like personal responsibility thing, right? And I think everybody rolls exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, we did this idea of personal responsibility without without explaining how this virus spreads from person to person. So what does that even mean? You know, it's like, oh yeah, be responsible, but we're not going to tell you that, you know, it's, it's actually airborne transmission. So like, what, what are we, you know, it just, your explanation as to why we in the first place decided to assume it was droplets was essentially that if it wasn't droplets, we were fucked. So we had to pretend it was droplets. Like that's to me, not, do you know what I mean? Like I, like, if I, if I smell smoke or whatever coming from the basement, it's like, I can go and see if there's a fire or I can be like, it wouldn't be cool if there's a fire. So I'm just going to assume <laughs> that that's not a fire. And I'm going to act like it's just a little bit of steam coming from the washer. I think it's like, I'm going to assume that this fire is going to burn itself out and I'm not going to have to worry about it. Like, I'm going to say that it's just going to stay downstairs. It's not going to come up here. We're fine. Um, I think there's, you know, this is something that happened with, with vaccines coming out is I think there is this huge hope that vaccines alone, um, would be able to just totally stamp out the virus and like partial vaccination. So like 60% of the population, uh, like you remember almost a year, no, what, geez, when would that have been like March or something when we were having those discussions? When we said, um, if we get to 70%, we're good yeah, then, to we're, then we're perfect. Yeah. We know that's not the case anymore, but, but I think people like really put all their hopes on that as, as being the solution. And it's heartbreaking uh, when that doesn't turn out to be the case and you still have to think about these other things you can do, but that's the reality of where we're at. Right. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just so like, it's so scary because we're at the point now where like, it's now like, listen, you got to go get your booster because we're starting to see like, you know, the effects of the vaccine aren't aren't as good or whatever and things like this so that's scaring the shit out of me because the anti-vaxxers are their big argument is like well we're not getting you're going to be getting jabs for the rest of your life this kind of thing and so that's part of the thing that worries me <laughs> i'll comment on that yes um we do that for like so many things like tetanus if you scratch something on metal or whatever like you're not going to refuse a tetanus booster like come on like that that's such a ridiculous argument that um oh we have to boost forever it's like we do that with so many things like why why are you worried about it for this specific vaccination like it's big pharma you know (laughs) 
Well, but then these are the same people that talk about the importance of things like hydroxychloroquine and invermectin. So like pick a lane if you're going to make that argument. Like you can't totally. like, what are we doing well, here? Well, listen, like I'll have the, I'll have the discussion all day that we should not be at our world should not be set up that we rely on for-profit companies to drag us out of the muck and we should be nationalizing the shit out of this stuff, but that isn't the case. And these are the only places we can get the vaccine. So shut up and take it. Now yeah. I want to get into possible numbers because we, Early on, of course, it's like it's not airborne, and then it's like, well, it might be airborne. What kind of data do we have uh, on sort of how contagious it is compared to other airborne viruses that we've had? And I know it's hard to compare to things like chicken pox and the measles because we now have vaccines for those, but those are apparently highly contagious without vaccines. Um, do we know how SARS-CoV-2 uh, compares to some of these others? Yeah. So do you mean like the current variant or like the original, like wild type one? Like, cause it's, well, it's let's changed do both over time. because I think it's getting worse. Right. But yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this, the, the question of how to estimate this, this R not, I think is a really, it's, it's a really difficult thing to do. Um, uh, and like, this is outside of my area of expertise. So it's only something that I've sort of picked up from others. Um, like rough estimates, I think for the R not of the original SARS-CoV-2 that we had was about like two to three. Um, which is, which is like high, but it's not, you know, explosively crazy. Um, but I think with, with, uh, the Omicron variant, I, I think it's, well, I don't even know if we have a good estimate yet. It's probably up around 10. <laughs> um, well, and like, I even you know, saw, we had Gosha on a few times and we talked about our not before I've seen guesstimates as high as 5.7 for the for the original, if not maybe the UK variant or whatever. So, I mean, we're talking about, then again, to listeners who haven't heard those shows, are not is assuming you do absolutely nothing, society just goes on as normal. How many people is one person who gets COVID likely to give that to? And of course that number falls. It So it's different, R not is different than the R value. R value is your real time number. So what is actually happening? What is the number that's occurring? And it's it comes down to the one, point whatever or less than one when we have restrictions in place yeah yeah no exactly um you know and 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 as as you know like it's it's very hard to actually get a good estimate of this value it does help guide some decision making um but like the early indications are that omicron's pretty bad it's it's like up there with with you know things like chicken pox um and you know we we actually talk about this r not um and and we've relied a lot on it uh, I don't know if you've heard of this term called overdispersion. Have you heard of that one as well? No. So this is sort of the next level on top of R naught. Overdispersion is is kind of looking at, uh, you know, what's the distribution of these R values. So um, the R value is an average. It's telling you that on average, one person is going to give it to three people if your R naught is three. But if you actually look at how this disease is spreading, this is very much a disease transmitted by clusters. So it's not every time this disease is moving from one generation to the next, it's one person giving it to three. It's more like um, one person gives it to 20, uh, 19 of those people don't give it to anybody. And then one of those 20 gives it to another 20. You know, like, yeah, don't fault me on the numbers. because No, no, but head, that's but, a good, but That's yeah. kind of what's going on with it. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, if we want to tie it back to airborne transmission, that is one of the things that sort of clued us into you know, we think it's these indoor environments with bad ventilation. 
that are facilitating these super spreading events that are actually playing a really important role here. So, you know, yeah. Now we've had, I've heard different arguments all as we all have for, for two goddamn years about, about what to do here. Um, can't remember his name. I don't care, but he used to be the, apparently was in charge of emergency management in Alberta. He did a big talk and Redmond, I think was his last name. Anyways, I, I didn't agree with a, very much that he said, but he, he talked a lot about uh, how uh, what we really should be doing is, you know, protecting the most vulnerable and blah, 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 blah. If we're talking right now, we're seeing like the worst events are these poorly ventilated super spreader events. Are we capable of getting to a COVID zero or a close to it by just take, taking those out of the equation? Um, does that make sense? Like if we were to just, I mean, we tried that, right? Like we've, it kept, you know, we've tried the no large gatherings or whatever, but if, is that enough? Like, are we, could we keep doing that and then just get to zero? Do you think like, is this making sense? I realize I rambled, but. No, I, I think that is that is one of the questions we don't know the answer to, um, but one that you know if we're looking at how these clusters of transmissions work, like we got to we if we want to try to keep this thing under control, we have to start doing something about them. So whether or not you know, I, I think a lot of us have a feeling that if we were able to really tamp down the number of these clusters that are happening, we would have a much better chance of of really reducing transmission in general. Um, I can't give you an exact number for how much it'll change. Um, really great question. Um, but I think all the evidence we could ever need from a decision-making perspective is there to, to start doing this, to start identifying those spots, to, to be a bit smarter about, you know, how we're trying to prevent transmission. Um, you know, the one, the idea with focus protection is that it's a huge flaw in that, in that, you know, the disease doesn't just magically pop out um, it, you know, it has to transmit from one person to another focus protection, unless you're locking, you know, people in long-term care away for the rest of their lives. Um, um, you know, the, the, the high risk quote unquote individuals, unless you want them to live in a perpetual, you know, kind of prison, uh, it, focus protection doesn't work. I don't think focus protection is an ethical way of doing of, 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 you know, focus protection as per like the great Barrington declaration thing. I really don't think that's, that's an ethical way of, of looking at society. Um, well, but, it also, yeah. it also doesn't work. <laughs> well, yeah, that too. It right? also doesn't like, work. <laughs> I mean, that was, I mean, how many times is like when Kenny was like, I, was this after the first wave or second wave or is just like, all right, we're going to protect long-term care facilities and then just let everything go back to normal and let the virus spread elsewhere. And obviously it makes its way back into long-term care. Well, we, we, and, and, you know, this, this applies for more than just long-term care, but I think we've, we've made the mistake of thinking that our community is distinct things, but the community isn't distinct things. It's, it's our society is we're all together. You know, there's links between every social circle. Um, so, so something that affects, you know, the, the example of classrooms, like saying that, yeah, whatever. Um, the, the first thought was it doesn't affect kids. The second thought is kids don't transmit. And now it's like, yeah, we know kids transmit. Like, okay. Um, but they don't get that sick. So it's fine. But the kids transmit it to others. And, and I, I like to, to their families, to, to, to the families of families, you know, stuff like this. It, it's just, I don't know how 
we haven't had this more, you know, just kind of thinking about this transmission stuff. It, it just, it kind of blows my mind. I, I guess we're trying to, in theory, like balance um, our, 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 like what we're actually putting into place to try to control this disease. But we haven't done this stuff for airborne transmission. So it's, it's kind of like, it's a very frustrating position to be in, you know? Yeah. Is, is there a point in all of this where, where we, we we're past the point of no return? Like um, story in today's uh, that I ran today on modeling for the country is like, listen, guys, it's going to ramp up. And that's even without Omicron, Omicron's coming as we keep producing these variants through trans or uh, developing these uh, mutations through rampant fricking transmission, they seem to get worse and worse and worse. Right. Is there a, is there, do we, do we, is this something that has an equation like numbers where you can sort of see like once R not reaches a certain point, like you might as well all just, Freaking either get in a glass tube individually or all get in the same room and see who lives. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, well, there probably is. I mean, I haven't done that, but, um, but no, I, I think um, it, the most pessimistic take is that SARS CoV 2 is not the last pandemic we're going to have to deal with, uh, is that we're going to have more after this, you know, even if it's 20, 30 years down the line, like whatever SARS CoV 2 do, does to us, it's not going to be the last. Um, so, you know, even if we do absolutely nothing for SARS-CoV-2, um, we should start applying the lessons that we've learned for this one. Um, but, you know, to your point with SARS-CoV-2, I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe it is sort of a point of no return type thing. I think the more that we uh, don't, you know, embrace the science on things like airborne transmission, the more that we um, try to justify previous measures that we know don't really make much sense, um, the more likely your scenario is to happen. So um, is there a point of return? I don't know. Um, but I think we, we know that there are things we can be doing differently. Um, and I think we should. Now, as far as where we are now, and in this, like in your messaging that is that you feel is most important to Alberta, I just want to make sure we're hitting all the all the points before before we end the show today. Are like when you're if you're getting up in front of the province, aside from what we've already talked uh, talked about today, what what kinds of things would you totally like put your focus on when telling Albertans what they need to know about this? Yeah, so I mean, the big thing I was talking about before with like the mental model of how this disease transmits from person from person to person. Uh, try to think of it like cigarette smoke. Um, and, and if you're having an indoor gathering, like, first of all, try to keep the numbers down. So don't cram your house for a frat party type thing. Um, but, you know, think about what you would do if you were sharing that space with somebody who was smoking and you couldn't get them to stop smoking. Um, like if say they just weren't a polite person, they just continued to smoke the entire time. What would you do to reduce your exposure to that smoke? So you open windows, you know, you, you actually try to move outdoors if you can, they probably, right. Um, all these different sorts of things. And that's, that's for when we're talking about gatherings, you know, like among your, your inner circle, like people you want to get together with the holidays. So, so move outdoors if you can, you know, um, try to keep doors and windows open, stuff like that, get fresh air in spaces. Um, you know, HEPA purifiers, great idea. Get, get one or two of those for your living room. If you're going to have people over, um, you know, just, just be, just be aware, just think about this so that you can help guide your decision-making. Um, so an air purifier actually helps. Yeah. So, so one of the unfortunate things of this pandemic is that there are snake oil salesmen for in every way, shape and form. Right. Um, so there are some that are, that aren't good. 
um, but like real HEPA purifiers. And, and there are some, some people on um, engineers in the States who, for example, actually do a really good job of, 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 of categorizing like the legitimate ones um, and stuff like that. So ones that actually are good and will help, like they won't, they won't hurt. Um, so, so um, you do have to be a little bit aware of that. So avoid, you know, snake oily terms like ultra mega air catalyzation ozone bipolar <laughs> thing thing. Like those things, no, you don't need that. You, it's we'll just buy like your a, purifier in the metaverse. Yeah, ex yeah no exactly. NFT purifiers. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so, so that is absolutely something that, that can help. You know, it's, it's, um, we've got one in our house and, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just it, one of the things that you can do. Um, but aside from, you know, these gatherings, you know, uh, you know, the other thing is the rapid tests. If you can do that before you get together, just to make sure. Um, that you don't really have, you're not like emitting a lot of virus. If, if you, un, if you're unlucky and you happen to be, you know, um, sick with COVID-19, you know, get vaccinated because, um, because vaccination does help. Vaccination absolutely helps. Um, and I don't want anybody to, to come away from this podcast thinking that vaccination is a bad idea. No, this is absolutely really, really, really good idea. It does uh, do a tremendous job of reducing severe outcomes. And, and if you can get your booster dose, if you're eligible, get it. Um, but, you know, uh, aside from these sorts of gatherings, like we're talking about out and about in public, um, you know, wear a better quality mask or respirator. If, if you can get a hold of N95s, K95s, use those um, when you're doing your Christmas shopping, because um, you know, people are probably going to be doing Christmas shopping. Uh, try to limit the amount you do. But, you know, just 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 again, think about this sort of this this mental model of, of a person smoking uh, and try to use that to guide, you know, what you're doing day to day. I, I think that if we can get that mental model out there, um, I think that, you know, people are smart. People know how to make good decisions. And, and once you, I think, provide them the tools to make those decisions, I, I, I'm optimistic we can do better. So, yeah. I mean, I agree with that. I feel like maybe you left medicine hat too long ago to make such a comment, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> people are smart here too. Jeremy, what else you got for our uh, almost doctor friend? Well, I was going to ask when you're when you're going to become a doctor, but Scott Don't laid out the parameters apparently, of this discussion before. Apparently, that's like the most ludicrous question you could ever ask somebody that's doing a PhD. So, like so this is long. this is about the only time you can ask me because I'm actually in pretty good shape for it. So I'm I'm literally like dotting the I's and crossing the T's on the first draft of the dissertation. So at this point, I'm actually pretty excited. <laughs> so nice. if a year ago, a year ago, you would ask me this, I would have been like, don't ask me this question, but. <laughs> it's probably hard to keep, do during a pandemic, especially when the pandemic is literally the field you're studying too. Like so, it's a lot. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 all of this COVID-19 advocacy stuff is, um, you know, my thesis is, is, is in pharmaceutical aerosol. So, so not, not this like COVID-19 stuff. So, so the work that I've done with this has been very much on the side. Um, and I've been lucky to have had um, supportive supervisors who, who, you know, um, are happy to give me the space to, to do that. Um, but it is, you know, I, Bridget was talking about how difficult it is to, to balance these things when you're, when you're working on a thesis. And it's very true. Um, it's very easy to get lost in this advocacy stuff um, and, and to, you know, when you realize that you're spending too much time on it, uh, you can feel guilty when, when you take a step back to, to work on your own stuff. Um, that's something Bridget mentioned. And I think I, I very much empathize with that. It was a very, very good point from her of like, you know, you can't, 
you do what you can, but you also can't let it take over your life. I think with the advocacy. Oh, so yeah. we got a listener here. Yeah. Well, he, oh, yeah, I mean, well, there you go. I had to, I had to get yeah. prepped. <laughs> he, had, he had to learn the show. He listened to Bridget's episode. Now he sounds That's like good. an expert. That's right. No, I, I, I appreciate um, yeah, that. Well, and like, I just, just, I guess that's where I want to leave it. Like we're trying, we, when we talk about this subject on this show, it can be pretty doom and gloomy and whatnot. Um, I, we want people to go away with this with, you know, a little bit of optimism and whatnot. But um, that being said, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting, scary time here because um, Omicron's about to ramp up just as the Christmas season arrives. And we know that people are going to um, do what they want to do in a lot of ways when it comes to Christmas. Kenny certainly isn't going to stand there and be a leader and suggest that you do otherwise. Um, so if you're going to do those things, I think, you know, to just take away just there's ways to be safer. Uh, there's way, ways to take precautions and uh, it goes maybe it goes a bit beyond what we're probably used to doing like like I said get those rapid tests um, ventilate that room you know like try to try to make sure and just know who you're gathering with right and and know that they're being being safe as well because it's just we get in these places where the cases are down and we're like, oh, we get this breathe a sigh of relief. But I mean, four waves in, we should know that like these uh, ebbs don't last very long. And unfortunately, uh, there's more to come and Christmas is only going to add to that. So do your part to to limit the spread of this. Um, Connor, are you got any, uh, I want to give you the last word. So I just want to make, you got any last final thoughts for our listeners today? Uh, you know, just... Um... As you're noting, uh, I think it's important to not be too doom and gloom. Um, you know, we've got things we can do to, to get together safe over the holidays. Um, so yeah, do that. And, uh, you know, if you do all these things, like, I, yeah, it is what it is. Try not to stress gonna, too much. Yeah. Give yeah. yourself the best protection yeah. you can, right? It's like anything yeah. else. You're yeah. going out and do a yeah. blizzard. Wear as many layers as you can and, and protect yourself. And that doesn't always mean that it's a guarantee, but it means that you're doing uh, as much as you can. So that's really good. But Connor, I really want to thank you for coming on the show today. Um, really amazing insight into uh, the aerosol aspect of this virus. You're doing the province an amazing service. Uh, we're not the only ones that think so. Um, you're, you're drawing the uh, admiration and uh, appreciation of a lot of uh, your colleagues and a lot of uh, other people in this fight against COVID. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Yeah. Thanks. Honored to be, uh, you got me speechless. I, I, I honestly don't really think about, uh, I, I sometimes don't think about it, but, um, no, I, I really do appreciate the kind words there. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's needed. We need as many voices as we can. So appreciate it. It's the time in the show, you guys, where we thank those of our listeners who go way above and beyond anything we could ever hope for to Darius Beargard, to Nicola Dinacola to the big red machine to dave bond miller and to our good friend chris sterwald thank you guys so much for everything you do we hope you guys have a fantastic holiday season same thing to our other patrons and listeners couldn't do this without you guys um share this episode make sure people are understanding this is stuff we got to talk about um and it's always a pleasure to be able to do that on this show in an in-depth way so we are now taking our holiday break on the forgotten corner we will return in the new year 
Um, but uh, we just want to wish everyone the best and stay safe. And uh, we'll see you guys next, not next week. We'll see you guys in 2022. All right. Take care. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs>